welcome to Rhetoric O-Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our first season of Rhetoric O-Rama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of the rhetorical situation. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Quidem concessum est rhetoribus ementiri in historiis, ut aliquid dicere possent argutius. I couldn't have said it better myself. I agree. All right. So, Tim, the question before us is, what is the rhetorical situation? Turns out there's a guy named Bitzer and a guy named Bats, and they both have two different discussions of it. Well, what's Bitzer say, Tim? Bitzer says that the rhetorical situation... Uh, is created by an urgency, and this urgency then dictates your response to an audience, and the audience has to be people who could conceivably change the situation if persuaded by your message. Okay, and so what what makes that uh, urgency so important? Um, what makes the urgency so important? It's, uh, I don't know. You tell me, Dave. <laughs> It's the exigence, right? Oh, that's it. It's the exigency. Right. And so one of the things I like about the word exigence, if you look it up in the dictionary, the definition of exigence is exigency. That's a lie. No, that's true. And another thing, if you look at one of those engrams that talks about the usage of it, Uh it was a very popular word in the 19th century, and it is almost unused in the 20th century because I think in the 20th century, we prefer something like pressing need rather uh-huh. than a fancy word like exigence. Do you think it's going to be used much in the 22nd century? Uh, I don't know. There could be a lot of need. So there's the exigence that creates a situation that needs calls for discourse. Yes. Okay. And that discourse is aimed at an audience. Yeah. And the audience can't just be anybody. The audience has to be people who are capable of possibly changing that needful situation Some based VIPs. upon... Yeah. Now, uh, so the audience has to be able to, to uh, do something, but what other factors can affect the discourse, according to Bitzer? There's quite a few other factors that can affect the discourse. We've got what he would call constraints, okay? And so uh, one of the things is your response should be fitting. You don't want just an irrelevant response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then basically uh, you've got things like Uh, the power to constrain decision and action needed to modify the exigence. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got things like audience beliefs, Mm -hmm. uh, the rhetor's past actions. So Mm -hmm. to some degree, uh, if someone uh, has a reputation as a liar, that's going to sort of put some constraints on their message. Um, Cultural ideologies and history, genre expectations, all of those things could somehow constrain the discourse. I love it. So for Bitzer, he says there's a situation which is uh, an imperfection marked by urgency mm-hmm. that requires some discourse Indeed. towards an audience mm-hmm. who can do something about it. Right. But all this has to happen within the constraints of the audience, the situation, the speaker, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and so this people describe him as a, either a realist mm-hmm. or uh, an objective approach. A naturalist? Uh, could be a naturalist. A naturalist as well. Well, then, on the other hand, uh, in the rhetorical studies area, there's a guy named Vats, and he says that's just the opposite. Yeah, he says rather than the rhetorical situation dictating what you can, how you can respond, Uh, you've got some freedom of choice. So the rhetor, basically by choosing to respond in the first place, and what kind of a response 
to aim at what audience, uh, the rhetor is much more has much more agency in terms of creating the rhetorical situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So rather than the situation. Uh, be the cause, Mm -hmm. the rhetoric is the cause that brings people's attention to whatever the exigence might be. Indeed. Can you give me an example of that? Well, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is that you might recall that uh, Richard Nixon, who was Dwight Eisenhower's pick for vice president, was accused of improprieties relating to reimbursement for political expenses. That sounds bad. A straightforward application of Bitzer's theory would recommend that Nixon explain to prospective voters how the fund was totally legal and his expenditures completely legitimate. Instead, he went on TV and spoke about his low-cost apartment, the struggle with the mortgage payment, the parental loans, the lack of life insurance on the wife and children, the wife's cloth coat, and ultimately his refusal to give back the family dog, quote, regardless of what they said about it, unquote. The public responded positively. Eisenhower kept him on the ticket and the pair swept to victory in 1952. You know, up until the dog and running for election, that sounds like a lot of uh, obstacles young people face today. Indeed. One of the things that Nixon might have been doing is saying, okay, the people aren't really interested in financial improprieties. They just want to see me as a regular guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, But he wasn't. So, so a possible, it's possible that Batz's notion of the rhetorical situation does a better job of analyzing it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, if Nixon's checker speech, from that perspective, it is Nixon's choice to respond to the charge of financial impropriety that creates the exigence, and instead of his verbal response being dictated by the charge, Nixon gets to choose the focus, electing to cast himself as a regular guy with financial obligations whose first priorities are about family, including his children's attachment to the Cocker Spaniel they are given by a Texas traveling salesman. So I guess my question is, who is Richard Nixon? (laughs) Well, Richard Nixon is certainly someone who uh, has been famous for a variety of uh, rhetorical, ooh, I won't call them niceties, but... uh, Statements. He's he's made some statements that... uh, He opened up trade to China. He did open up trade to China. People always forget that. And and now people might say that might not be uh, as popular as it once was. There's also some advantages from uh, us as from a scholar's point of view, because for Bitzer, he claims that rhetoric is... Well, he doesn't uh, claim. He suggests that rhetoric is secondary right it's the situation that calls for the rhetoric and that kind of puts rhetoric as a as a second place right indeed it's making it sort of the handmaiden to logic and reality Mm -hmm. and this is something that's happened again and again people who make rhetoric just be dressing up something in fancy clothing as opposed to people who make rhetoric be epistemic and it actually constitutes constitutes knowledge and so for vats he kind of takes that perspective where rhetoric is primary and it creates the meaning of the situation to which people attune to. Indeed. And in that, he's in, in good company. There are a lot of people. Uh, there's an author, Robert Scott, who says rhetoric is epistemic. Rhetoric makes knowledge. Um, reason as rhetorical, Richard Harvey Brown. We get speech acts, J.L. Austin. So basically, rhetoric is constitutive of reality. So things like legal pronouncements, I pronounce you man and wife. By the authority invested in me, I confer the Bachelor of Arts degree. O.J. was pronounced not guilty. All of these are things in which verbal statements made reality. Mm-hmm. Like the person who married me. Yes. <laughs> not, not my wife, the person who married me. The, the uh, ordained minister. The ordained minister, right? And so 
uh, I think the nice distinction between uh, Bitzer and Vats, at least in our, uh, our discussion here, is uh, Vats really gives us the tools to be rhetorical critics and to look into and see what's going on, mm-hmm. right? Whereas uh, uh, Bitzer, not so much? Not so much. And Bitzer, again, almost makes us sort of, we, are, we have less agency and reality is happening to us. Mm-hmm. And then based on what happens, our choices are fewer. We can pick this or that, but we have to get a fitting response to the right audience. And for me, as a rhetorician, that just doesn't feel quite as uh, happy a situation as Vance's notion of me being able to make the rhetorical situation. Mm, I gotcha. So Tim, what's the answer? What is the rhetorical situation? It seems like we are in a chicken or egg situation. Indeed, it does. But for me, the rhetorical situation occurs whenever a pressing need calls for a rhetor to craft a verbal response and present it to an audience capable of acting in a way that might make the need less pressing. I love it. All right. Are you ready for a challenge? I am indeed. So in both Bits or, or, uh, uh, Bitzer and Vats's conceptions, they focus on the situation and the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. What about the role of the speaker, the actual speaker and the audience. They seem kind of, uh, what's the word, uh, somewhat uh, uh, static, right? They don't change, they're, they're uh, subservient to that situation uh, or to the rhetoric. And the audience almost seems like a homogenous group of people. Yeah, it's a little problematic. But again, since the audience has to be one that is capable of hearing the message and responding in a way that might reduce the pressing need, Mm -hmm. that's where the audience gets some agency. And I think in both Bitzer and Vats, the audience, if you pick the right audience, that audience then has some agency. But that also talks about looking at it from just that kind of a very linear perspective, right? So the situation creates the rhetoric or the rhetoric creates the situation and then the audience does something. But as you know, audiences are so, right, heterogeneous and so Mm -hmm. different. They might have different interpretations. There might be a secondary audience. Like for example, you gave the example of Nixon. Like he's long gone and is that speech no longer able to be uh, analyzed by contemporary audiences because the audience really can't do anything anymore. I think the limitation for both of them is that, that the audience has seemed to uh, uh, unimportant, secondary, and I think that's a limiting factor. And so Barbara Biesecker writes an article that talks about this. This is where it's coming from. I'm not really this smart. Uh, she says that this rhetorical situation gives us a, a chance to look at the identities created in these situations mm-hmm. for the audience and the speaker. Absolutely. And again, one of the things that Bitzer uh, has a redeeming quality in that uh, among his constraints are uh, the rhetor's past actions, etc. So the idea that a rhetor... Uh, has a history, and that then makes him not just sort of a neutral pronouncer of message to some uh, sort of fitting audience, mm-hmm. but the fact that that rhetor's past history, mm-hmm. and then in producing a response, is creating a new history. Mm-hmm. So someone who uh, sort of uh, maybe keeps messing up and saying things that they shouldn't say, they are affecting their ability to persuade a mm-hmm. fitting audience uh, to change something, a pressing need, mm-hmm. because their own reputation is being impacted in real time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's identities put on these rhetors that they don't want to say, for example, want, or are framed differently than they would like to be framed. Indeed. All right. 
Hey, you got a uh, challenge for me? I do, Dave. Imagine your boss has informed you and all your colleagues via email that the CEO has just proposed a questionable new policy, asking for suggestions to dissuade the president from implementing his very bad idea. You let your boss know that you think the policy is moronic, but accidentally hit reply all. Uh -huh. Using either Bitzer or Batz's notion of the rhetorical situation, what should you do next? If I were in that situation, I think I would double down and write it out. Okay. Right? So if you put it out there, uh, I would double down and say, yeah, that's what I meant. I think this is a bad idea. Okay. So I would double down. I like it. And again, that is consistent with my idea of VATS really offering a richer theoretical structure for rhetors who would see themselves as having some agency and, and not just being. And rhetorical critics to look at those that rhetoric. Indeed. All right. We good? We're good. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Okay, we've landed on fallacy. So the rhetorical fallacy of the episode is the casual reductionism. Causal. Ca causal reductionism, right? So that's a uh, also called a complex cause, a fallacy of a single cause, or a causal huh, oversimplification. And that's where you assume a single cause or reason when there's actually multiple causes or reasons. Tim, you got an example? Yeah, this, well, I think this is an interesting fallacy because it feels like a formal fallacy, the kind that are based on faulty deductive reasoning, mm -hmm. but may actually be an informal fallacy if, in fact, there is really no such thing as cause. If, as Hume would have us believe, cause is just a name we give to the relation of sequence, then the fault with any causal explanation is not that that one picked the wrong cause or too few causes, but the very notion of cause is unreliable in the first place. Hmm. So it actually is a casual Casual fallacy. Right? All right. So we good? We're good. All right. So before we go get some cheeseburgers, uh, we need to take care of our business. Tim, who's sponsoring this episode? Today's episode is sponsored by Crisis Communication Consulting, a full-service LLC providing real-time analysis of any rhetorical situation. Triple C applies cutting-edge artificial intelligence modeling to your choice of Bitzer or Bat's conceptual framework. You simply describe the pressing need and up to three different potential audiences per crisis. And Triple C's powerful algorithms will recommend the very best message for each audience. Based upon a proprietary suite of analytical vectors addressing such demographic characteristics as age, gender, race, zip code, socioeconomic status, religious affiliation, political party, and now, for the very first time, sexual preference. You simply describe the crisis and identify the audience and their program provides the best message to fit the rhetorical situation, all done in real time with no need for a costly focus group of questionable pr predictive accuracy. That's Crisis Communication Consulting, the leader in real time artificial intelligence analysis of any rhetorical situation. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. We'd like to thank our British voiceover artist, and we'd like to thank our musical director, Tom Santiago. rhetorico Rama is recorded at Casto Di Pado Studios. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or you can consult your local library. Now, let's go get some cheeseburgers. You had me at cheeseburgers.